Sex and Murder, a cult killer paranormal podcast. Welcome to the first of two episodes about Jason Andrews. Jason Andrews was a child in England that experienced paranormal events, including abductions and contact with alien beings from birth to mid-teens. Information in this podcast has been taken from the book Abducted, the true story of alien abduction by Anne Andrews and Jean Ritchie, and documents the events that occurred around the Andrews family throughout the 80s and 90s. We'll be hearing about strange phenomena, lost time, potentially the men in black, and of course, abductions. Lots and lots of abductions. But before we get to all of that, there's a couple of things to look at that occurred before the birth of Jason Andrews himself. You see, it seems that Jason's grandfather, that is Anne's father, Stan, was something of an animal whisperer, in particular wild horses. And there's an account of how he broke in a horse, I don't know if that's the correct terminology, I'm not a horse guy, that no one was able to ride. Anne, that is Jason's mother, seemed to have the gift as well, horses being naturally at peace with her. There was one memory that stuck with her long after childhood. When she was little, the age isn't given, but she was a kid, she was young. She couldn't sleep. Stan was working that night, and Violet, her mother, was sleeping in the bed next to her. Pat, their dog, laid at the foot of Anne's bed. She had a strong feeling that someone else was in the room. Peeking above the covers, she saw a cloaked figure rise through the floor at the bottom of the bed. Anne tried to wake Violet, but she was deep asleep. The dog remained still as well, not stirring from its sleep. The tall figure moved to the side of the bed. It pulled its hood back and stared at her with two large eyes. Its face was not human. The large eyes were shiny black. That was all that she remembers of the night. The following morning, Violet comforted her, telling her it was naught but a dream. Stan died two months after Jason was born. Violet remembers him telling her that there were things that she could never understand, that he could not reveal to her. It's cryptic stuff. Another instance of strangeness in the family, when Anne was around four years old, she had an imaginary friend. Now, Violet paid no mind to it because kids have imaginary friends all the time. Stan, however, was keenly interested and particularly troubled by what Anne had to say and tried to get Anne to describe to him what that friend was like. Perhaps, just perhaps, it was a visitor from another world. When Anne was 12, her family moved to a large house from Peckin to Slade Green. And there, her life was fairly normal. She had friends, she graduated school with five O-level GCEs, and she had a few jobs, nothing of note. Then she met a man called Paul, and they were married in 1977. Daniel, their oldest boy, was born a couple of years later. Anne learnt of her father's heart condition soon after falling pregnant with Jason. Determined to see the grandchild, Stan got to see him for two months before passing. Stan taught Anne much about horse whispering, 
she tended to be a natural with animals as well, but he was forbidden from teaching her everything. That's where Jason comes in. Now, I speculate it was in these two months that Stan, quote-unquote, passed to Jason the knowledge that he had. It seems as Jason grew, he had inherited Stan's affinity for horses. Mysterious events occurred again around this time. She would place him in his cot, only to find him lying on the floor underneath it. Twice, she found him underneath a chair near the cot. Once, she went in to check on him, and found the cot completely empty, the blanket neatly pulled back. She screamed alarm and was answered to a baby Jason's scream coming from behind the door. Anne suspected that it was Daniel doing this, but these things happened even when Daniel was accounted for. Once he had been visiting Violet, and another he had been gardening with Anne the entire time. Violet had this happen to her when she was watching Jason as well. In the end, Daniel was blamed for it, but they really didn't push, push the point since he constantly denied it. Over the next few years, Daniel tended to talk to himself, speaking of a friend that visited him at night sometimes. Now, I don't have kids, though. I was once a kid. I don't think what he described would be considered anything typical of an imaginary friend. He told her of a soldier man who would be scared away if Anne stepped into Daniel's room. The visitor's name was Junus. And when watching an old sci-fi movie, Daniel pointed to one of the uniforms and told her that Junus wears that. It was an all-in-one space costume with epaulettes on the shoulders. Junus, it seems, was teaching Daniel about the stars and the sky. It wasn't all the time that Daniel would see him, though. It seemed to be for a bit, then the visits would stop for a few weeks. They'd try to catch him when he was chatting at night with Junus, but he would always stop when they were close enough to hear what he was saying. Junus would continue to visit Daniel until he was seven, when stranger things began to happen in the household. But before that, 2nd of July, 1987, Jason Andrews' fourth birthday, in a cottage located in Slade Green, Kent. With the party wrapped up, the day came to a close, and Jason had fallen asleep on the couch. Paul and Anne were having a cup of coffee, along with Jason's grandmother, Violet, around 10pm, when they heard a banging on the door. The banging became more urgent and violent, and the frame was shaking. Paul opened the door to an empty night. There was no one there. The noise had stopped the moment Paul touched the door. He stepped outside to have a look for who it could have been, but could see that the aerial was deserted. Paul stepped back into the living room, and that's when they heard thunder, louder than they ever had before. Thunder that just kept going starting quieter than getting extremely loud, as if it was rolling over the house. Daniel, seven years old, was awake by this time, and had made his way to the living room. Jason remained asleep through all of this. Interestingly enough, there was no lightning in this instance until after the thunder. A bright flash of light that startled everyone in the room. Jason was awake by this point, and had started to talk. Out of his mouth streamed numbers, 
The book says strange algebraic configurations, mathematical terms like pi and binary codes. This was coming from Jason, four years old, who was a child that had trouble counting to ten in his books. The loud banging began again, sounding like it came from the windows this time. Paul tried to call emergency services, and while he had dial tone, the emergency number wasn't registering. He gave up after the third try. The banging then ceased as Jason stopped talking. Jason, seemingly in a trance, got up from the lounge. Paul grabbed Jason's shoulders and asked him where he was going. Jason told them, with a flat, emotionless voice, They're waiting for me. I have to go. Then the banging began again. Jason shrugged off Paul and then walked to the door again. Paul restrained him, shaking him to snap the kid out of it. Jason struggled and the knocking got louder. Paul, quote, gently slapped him, unquote, and gradually Jason woke up and the knocking ceased. The kids soon were laying in front of the TV as if nothing had happened. Violet was making tea and the dogs were emerging from their hiding places. Paul dialed the police and it got through to them this time. He informed them of the knocking and they dispatched someone right away. Police arrived and they went through all of the story. Paul didn't mention the part that Jason played in it. He, along with the two policemen, went outside to inspect the house. No signs of damage. In fact, there were no signs of a single person having been there that night. There were no footprints found in the fresh mud. And it did not stop after that night. The cottage would be flooded with bright lights during the middle of the night, the lights in the house switching off before the bright light came on. Electricals were possessed, the TV or radio turning on or off seemingly at will. The TV turned on once after Anne had unplugged it from the socket. Clocks would gain or lose time, all in sync as if they all slowed or sped up at the same time. Electricians were called out to look at the wiring of the house. Each time they left, nothing seemed to be wrong. Assorted keys, cups, plates, and even books were found under beds and in the wrong rooms. Toothbrushes would disappear from the bathroom, only to be found in somewhere strange like the kitchen cupboard. Now, it's easy to chalk this up to someone being forgetful, but in the event that they possibly were going mad, they were double-checking each other, making sure that if they placed an item down, someone else was there to witness it. Nothing in this completely vanished. While it was inconvenient at times, the items weren't extremely important, and it was more of a nuisance than anything. And to the family, they were in good spirits about it. They joked, dubbing the events as their own poltergeist. They even named him Charlie. To Anne, it was little more than harmless fun. She didn't particularly believe in spirits, but had seen enough to understand that something was up. When she discussed it with Violet, Violet suggested they get an exorcism. As far as I can tell, they never got a priest around. A few months after his fourth birthday, Anne went downstairs to check on the kids. She found Daniel, but no Jason. He called Paul to check Jason's room for him. Paul walked into Jason's room, and Jason ran to him crying. Paul carried Jason downstairs, reassuring the child that he had just had a bad dream. But Jason refuted it, telling them that 
They came again, and I had to go with them. When they asked him, Who? He answered, The little men with big eyes. They scare me. I do not want to go with them, but they make me. Please make them go away, Daddy. Don't let the little one take me. Don't let them hurt me. He settled after that and was fine in a few minutes, running around and playing with Daniel. Early the next morning, Anne was finally drifting to sleep when she was startled back with a bright, clear, pale blue light. She roused Paul from his deep sleep. Paul was up and pulling back the curtains. The lane and the farm buildings were brightly lit, more bright than when they had been in the daylight. A pool of light seemed to stretch 50 metres every direction around them, tapering off into the night. Nothing outside moved. There was a scream from Jason's room. They rushed back to find Jason, red in the face, screaming with all his lungs. They're back, he shouted. Anne pulled him close and comforted him. When he stopped screaming, the light turned off. Paul went outside to check what was there. Taking the torch, he didn't find anything outside. Anne reports that over the next four weeks, the Jason that they knew disappeared. His personality changed to that of a child, I would say, traumatized. Where previously he had been outgoing and a bit of a daredevil when exploring the farm with Anne, he was now skittish, difficult, and clingy. He refused to sleep alone. Paul refused to have him in the bed when they needed to get up early for work. When Jason slept in Daniel's room, Anne would be woken in the early morning by Jason, jumping into bed with her. Anne the poltergeist, Charlie, continued to plague them. One evening in the winter, she went into the bedroom that the boys were now sharing, and was startled to see a large white snow owl in the window. Daniel paid no attention to it, but Jason was a little bit apprehensive. The birds stared at them for a few minutes before taking flight. It would return a handful of times over the next few months, sitting in the window for no longer than 30 minutes. A couple of times it even flew into the room, resting on the back of a chair to watch over them. Anne chalked it up to being an escaped or released tame bird, but either way it would continue to visit them sporadically until six months later. When the bird seemed to be gone for good, Daniel was upset. At night, he cried over it, and the bird appeared one final time, staring at Daniel without moving for several minutes. It took off, and Daniel accepted that he wasn't going to see it again, and he didn't cry over it after that. Paul never saw this owl, and having Jason always around Anne was beginning to put a strain on them as a couple. It was around this time, when Daniel was about eight, that Paul lost his job. The firm he worked for had been taken over by new owners who had some new ideas on how to run the place. Paul spoke his mind and was back home one morning at 11am having quit. Job hunting went slowly and was difficult, so Paul was around the house a lot more. He took up helping the neighbouring farm. The old man that ran it was almost at retiring in age and he kind of just needed a hand every now and then. He found his passion in this job, and the old man taught Paul all that he could about animal husbandry. 
cut to nine months after Paul had quit his job. They got notice that the house was going to be repossessed since they were late on their mortgage. Long story short, there was a boom in house prices in the 80s and the family ended up with no debts, £30,000 in the bank, but ultimately no house. With Paul still unemployed, they couldn't get a loan, but that £30,000 could get them a small holding. With this money, they bought a mobile home, some land, and some animals so Paul could get into farming. The area that they purchased was Hawk's Nest Farm, a wedge-shaped plot of land. It had a small pond in uh, around the middle there and was lined one side with thick woods. Within these woods was a barbed wire fence that marked the property of the Ministry of Defense. It was kind of like a training area for the Army Reserve. Jason, while they lived there, seemed to settle. But of course, I would just omit this part if everything returned to normal and absolutely nothing of note happened again. Jason, you see, began to help Paul around the farm, having inherited his grandfather's abilities with animals. It appeared that he could calm animals' nerves simply by being near them. They managed to gather horses for cheap since Jason was able to break in a lot of ponies that were deemed too difficult. It was one of these horses that something ha strange happened. The horse was named Shannon. Paul tended to the animals one morning to find Shannon standing still in the field. When Paul neared, he could see a large square flap had been cut sort of on the horse's shoulder. It had very clearly been done with a knife, but there was very little blood on the animal. The vet confirmed that it was a deliberate cut that several layers of the tissue below the skin had been removed. The vet repeated how odd this was as she stitched the wound. The horse didn't seem to feel it, like it had already been desensitized. Paul was more worried that anyone could have entered the property to begin with, at least not without rousing the dogs, the geese, and everything just generally making some noise. Ultimately, though, the horse was fine and healed quickly. Summer 1989, Anne was pregnant. When she told Paul, a rift formed between them. See, Anne didn't want the child. Paul did. It didn't take long, but she came around to Paul's side and told him she would keep it. Though they wouldn't tell the kids just yet. Their reason being that nine months was a long time to wait for something so exciting, which I personally find kind of a dumb reason. Their kids are not lumps of dirt, I'm sure they could understand, or they would forget about it in a few weeks. Probably more the reason, Anne had an uneasy feeling about this pregnancy. Two weeks later, a raggedy Anne fell into bed, but had some trouble falling asleep. When she finally did, she experienced bad dreams. The next morning, she was awoken by Paul. He phoned a doctor, the bedsheets were covered in blood. The doctor informed Anne that she had miscarried. Anne didn't tell Paul, 
but her dreams the previous night, something had tried to tell her something important. Just as she had not told the kids about the pregnancy, she didn't say a word about losing it either. Farm life would continue after that. Paul rebuilt a burnt-out barn that had been on the land when they first moved in. He filled the barn with some cows. Or at least that was the plan. You see, he was going to buy batches of five or six cows at a time and get them up to scratch. Or whatever it is. I, I don't know what they do with cows when they enter a farm. About five days after the first batch arrived, a council official arrived as well. He demanded to know how long they had been living there. Anne was a bit taken aback, since their presence wasn't exactly a secret. They paid their rates, and the surrounding neighbours had met them. The man from the council told them that they did not have permission to live there. Anne produced the deed, but that wasn't the problem. The councilman explained to them that the land had not been inhabited before, and that they needed a council seal of approval of sorts, before they could technically live there. The councilman was pleasant accommodating. Since the Andrews had seen similar setups on land surrounding them, they assumed that they could too. He told them, with all the proper paperwork filled out of course, he would submit it as soon as possible. He didn't commit though, telling them that he would not be surprised if it got rejected. Now you have to forgive me for a little bit of ignorance at this point because it's dealing with English local council laws, and I feel like I'm way out of my depth with that. Basically, through some local law shenanigans having to do with family benefits and the farm profits, look, the specifics aren't really important. What is, though, is the event that happened as they were anxiously awaiting these forms to be submitted. Smash cut to September 13, 1989. Anne was going about her morning, collecting eggs and doing farm stuff. Paul ran past her and told her that a calf had died as he got the vet on the phone. Paul had checked the calves the night before, and all was well, with no signs of anything being amiss. Now, of course, it could have been something that it ain't, in which case, they needed to know as soon as possible what it was to avoid the other cows from falling victim. The vet found it bizarre as well. Uh, when she was out there, there was no discernible cause of death. She arranged for the carcass to be taken to the Ministry of Agriculture Veterinary Investigation Center. She would call them tomorrow midday to update them. Anne explained that they were going to town to visit Violet, who just happened to be in the hospital at that time. An hour later, the vet called their house and told them that they certainly should not go to the hospital just in case they were carrying a pathogen that had killed the calf. They didn't want an outbreak of anything. The report came back that the calf had died of Salmonella typhinarium 204C. By the time they got the report, two other cows had fallen ill. Two weeks later, all but two of the 26 cows had died. In November, seven sheep died, as did the remaining two calves. The Ministry of Agriculture did tests around the farm, but there wasn't any origin to the tragedy. With the scope of the outbreak, Paul was initially told to burn the bodies, 
but he later received a call from a man claiming to be a ministry official. He told Paul to keep all the bodies. Paul assumed that they may have needed them for further testing or something like that. It was tough for all, but Anne had some extra despair. You see, her mother, Violet, had passed away during this time, and she was not able to visit her in hospital. The farm was devastated, but not completely gone. The Andrews still had pigs and chickens. Mid-November, an unmarked van pulled up to the farm. Paul greeted the tall, thin man that got out of the van. He wore a white, full-body suit with the hood pulled over his head. He told Paul that they were from the ministry. Five men, dressed like the first, got out of the van, and he proceeded to systematically inspect the barns. Paul asked them what they were doing, and was promptly ignored. When he tried to follow the men, they turned around with their arms stretched out until he left. It was only the thin man that would talk to Paul. He asked him to produce the movements of all the animals before they had died. Paul went to the house and got Anne, who had pulled all that information in the past month since the initial outbreak. She gave them all the information that they had, which animals were brought from where, and where they had arrived, and what they had given them, you know, information like that. The tall, thin man spoke into a walkie-talkie, although Paul and Anne couldn't hear what he said. He retrieved the papers and marched back to the other men, who at this point were moving carcasses into a lorry that had since pulled up. Once done, they piled back into the van and then disappeared down the driveway. Anne and Paul stood in silence for several minutes, only to be broken by Daniel and Jason shouting as they walked down the driveway. They'd walked up the only road after being dropped off. They reported that they had not seen any van or truck. Without the cows or sheep, the council finally determined that the small farm was not viable to be lived on. The payment rates for the cows, for they were bought on loan, raised from £100 to £300. They were once again faced with homelessness. Despite a deal Paul made with the local bakery for old goods to feed the animals, they weren't going to make it. A final nail in the coffin was when a branch fell through the mobile home, destroying one end of it. In 1990, the family was rehoused by the council, a home about 10 minutes from the farm. They were perplexed by the council's decision in terms of the mobile home. It didn't go with them. One of the reasons the living situation had been denied was because the mobile home was quote-unquote environmentally detrimental. But there wasn't any haste to do anything about it once the family was forced out. Six years later, when they bought the caravan, within two hours of the delivery, a council representative was at the house questioning them to make sure they weren't planning on living on in it full-time. The council seemed to have a network of intelligence. But despite the fact that they couldn't live there, they still had the farm. They couldn't sell it since Jason spent a lot of the time with the animals on it, and Anne and Paul agreed that it would break his heart to give them up. Paul took a job as a taxi driver that allowed him to care for the farm during the day.
In the mid-90s, on a Tuesday in September, the Andrews realised that they were being watched. Kids were at school and Paul and Anne were driving to the farm. They took the side road among the neighbour's fence line. To the left, standing out in the wheat field, were two figures. The Andrews could just make out the figures as they drove down the road, getting closer to them. They were tall, at least six feet tall, and wore black coats and black hats. They were not dressed in the, let's say, typical farmer attire, and Paul didn't recognise them, knowing all the neighbours fairly well at that point. When they tended to the animals at their farm, Paul constantly felt their stares. Whenever he checked, the figures in the distance remained motionless, looking over their way. As the Andrews were preparing to leave, Paul walked towards them to try and confront them. As he neared, the figures turned and disappeared into the woodland at the edge of the property. Paul followed, but they were completely gone. That Saturday, Jason was tagging along, helping out at the farm. He spotted them first that day, commenting on them to Paul. Paul booked it in his truck, as close as he could on the road, and then jumped out and chased the figures, getting closer than before. But, like last time, before he could reach them, they turned and disappeared into the woods. There were two instances in 1997. They heard a mobile phone ring when they were walking through a particular part of the woods that lined their property. Both cases, the mobile rang twice before being silenced. They heard no voices. After the second instance, they returned to the mobile home where they mostly kept feed and assorted things for cold days when they needed to get out of the weather. There was no sign of break-in, but things had been clearly moved about. Paperwork was out of place and the cupboards had been neatly rearranged. Two more times over the next two weeks, they heard the mobile ring again. At the end of March, Anne and Paul were finishing up some fencing for the night. They were about to pull out of the driveway when Anne remembered that she had some paperwork to get from the caravan. The two walked back, the sun having set by this time. Just past the gate, they almost collided with a man. He wore a simple white shirt and tie, but also had a camel hair coat, perfectly green wellingtons, and leather driving gloves. He looked very out of place in this high-end clientele of the city, let alone the side path so far away from a main road. Without a word, he walked past them, looking over his shoulder a few times to make sure they weren't following, and kept walking. May 8th, all the horses on the farm were standing still, staring at the equipment in the corner of the farm. Anne was in the caravan, but Paul later told her that when he was feeding the horses, he thought he saw a human shape behind the equipment. Before he could go down there and check it out, the horses started moving about again. When he looked back, the human shape was gone. Only 20 minutes later, Anne reports that she was fixing up the bedding for the horses when out of the corner of her eye she saw a head pop out from behind one of the large trees. There wasn't anything there when she turned around to get a better look, so she stared at the tree. Moments later, a head appeared, again quickly darting back. Anne noted that it was only four foot high, and the head was white, too large to be a human head. She called to Paul, explained to him what she had saw. Not taking her eye off the tree at all, Paul walked towards the tree, only for the figure to flee into the nearby tall grass and disappear into the woods nearby. 
Anne reports what she saw. Quote, The face was so pale, almost luminous, even though it was too far away from me to make out the features. The head seemed hairless and too big for a human head. The movement was really odd, a gliding motion that was smooth, even though it tracked across the field, changing direction once or twice. It was as if it was hovering just inches above the ground. There was no sense of it jogging up and down like a human would if they were moving so quickly. It moved easily through the brambles and tangled undergrowth. Okay, it's time to look at Jason himself a little bit more closely now. In addition to the fourth birthday event, we have instances of Anne putting Jason to bed after a bath, only for her to wake him in the morning with pajamas full of mud. Sometimes Jason would wake up in the morning with scratches on his hands and feet. He would wake her up in the middle of the night, Anne shrugged this off as bad dreams, but when Jason was older, he would insist that he wasn't dreaming. Jason also complained of stomach cramps, but trips to the GP and tests proved there was nothing wrong. Every time Jason reported that he had a physical ailment, doctors would be left scratching their head as to what it could be. On one trip to the hospital, the doctor thought Jason may have had appendicitis, the staff questioned Am about a 15 centimeter scar that ran on the right side of Jason's body. Anne replied that she had no idea. His behaviour at school shifted over the years. Initially mild-mannered, by the summer of 1995, he was so disruptive in class that the school he attended informed Anne that Jason would not be welcomed back to school after the summer holidays if he did not agree to attend a psychiatric program. Paul did not like the idea of Jason seeing a therapist. I guess he was kind of like the old type deal with it like a man kind of guy but nevertheless Jason would see a therapist since it would be too hard on him to change school altogether. It was in one of these therapy sessions that Jason told the therapist about quote the baby that never was referring to the miscarriage that Anne had suffered. Now remember they had never told Jason any of this there was a dream that really worried Jason, as well, where he was looking at his mother's coffin. At the suggestion of the therapist, Anne's GP called for a physical. She had a clean bill of health. Five days after that doctor's visit, though, a close friend of Anne's died. It's believed that this is the premonition that Jason had. After beginning the therapy sessions, Jason began to have trouble sleeping again. He had no energy during the day, and he insisted on sleeping in either Anne or Paul's room, or Daniel's room. Often, Anne would go to wake him, only to find him sleeping elsewhere in the house. Now, Paul dismissed this as mere sleepwalking. One instance, however, Paul was up late at night going to the bathroom. On an impulse, he checked on Jason. Jason was not in his room. He wasn't in Daniel's either. In fact, after waking Anne, he couldn't be found in the house at all. They called the police, Paul got his keys and ran outside. Anne checked the little shed nearby that they hadn't checked yet. 
heavy bolts kept it in place, closed, and it looked like it hadn't been disturbed recently. Anne strained to open the door, but when she did, she found Jason curled up in the corner. He didn't wake up even when Paul picked him up and put him back to bed. And these therapy sessions didn't seem to be helping Jason's behaviour either. It didn't improve at all at school, and a letter threatening suspension found its way into Paul's hands. Paul, now fairly fed up with all of this, blew up at Jason, and Jason just fed it back to him. A brief interlude involving one of the dogs almost eating Daniel's fish, Paul returned to Jason and talked to him in a quieter, more diffused tone. To which Jason told him, It's the dreams, Dad. I'm getting the dreams like I did when I was little. The next therapy session Jason had. Paul and Anne sat in and told the therapist of the dreams that Jason was plagued with. By her reaction, it was evident that he had been withholding information about the men, the men who came to get him in the night. These are some of the memories that Jason has. Quote, The first memory I have is just hands. He says, I was crying for some reason. I have no idea why. And I can clearly see some long fingers reaching down the cot and picking me up. They were different from mum's hands. The hands that usually pick me up if I was crying. These fingers were much longer. At least twice as long as mum's and they were thin, with large joints at the knuckles. And they were dark in colour, not black or brown, not even grey. I'd never seen a colour like it, like a dark dolphin colour. I don't know what happened after they picked me up." End quote. He then follows up with a similar memory, but this time he thought it was an elf. The next memory he shared was of a soldier, a tiny soldier, about two or so feet tall who he thought was a ghost. He has memories of small people reaching out for him, feeling terror when he saw them in the room. Closer to the present, the dreams were more cohesive and fully formed. One night he ran into Anne's room, full of terror and unable to articulate the large thing he's seen. Anne checked his body when he complained of a shooting pain in his side, only to find a red welt that ran from his chest to his hip. On this matter of marks, they would appear on Jason throughout his life, often appearing as a cluster of five dots, often on the shoulder or the knee. Back to the memories, Jason recounts how many times he was awoken by something, only to have the experiences as he was on the cusp of falling back to sleep. He saw, quote, a big one rise through the floor, only ever the one. While it was called the big one, it was just a hair bit shorter than a young teenage Jason. It had a large head, it had black eyes that were slanted and wrapped around the side of the head. It had a small mouth and nose, and elongated fingers that he remembered from when he was a baby. The big ones that he saw, he believed, were all different. There was one that had a scar on the top of his head in the shape of a zigzag. In addition to the big one, there appears half a dozen or so smaller entities. They're all identical to the big one, just smaller. And sometimes there are other creatures, which Jason had nicknamed 
koalas, since they were small and fuzzy and without a defined shape. Think the soot sprites from My Neighbor Totoro. The big one would always reach out for Jason, and that's where the memories end. If Jason awoke in his own bed, he would be tired and the clock would be two hours slow. Sometimes he would awaken elsewhere though, somewhere cold, sterile, smooth, like marble. Jason couldn't feel anything, nor could he move. The big one would approach him with a long metal object, like a ruler, and begin touching Jason. That's where the dream would end. One dream, separate from any of the instances before, Jason was being chased by something big and brown. He dove into a hole in the hedge and was scratched by the creature before it stopped. Jason believed that this was a message that the aliens were protecting him, in keeping with the patterns from earlier in his life. When he woke up, he was covered in scratches. His explanation for his trouble that he had in school was that he felt like the aliens were watching him. Paranoia teamed with exhaustion made him irritable, and it seems that the people around him at school would mock him whenever he talked about his dreams. And this is where we'll be ending this episode, picking back up next episode to further on explain the life and strange occurrences surrounding Jason Andrews. Tune in for part two next episode.